are in our Advent series still, and this is our last Sunday of Advent. And um, hopefully you've been following along. If you haven't had a chance to, do want to encourage you to go back and listen to the messages from this last few weeks. We kicked off with Ruth and Naomi and explored the idea that God is not done with our story. Then we moved into Rahab. Jess taught this beautiful sermon about our walls coming down. What does it mean to wait when we're just waiting for God to come through? Is he gonna come? Can we trust him? How do we lean into that vulnerability? And then last year, Melissa preached us a powerful message around Elizabeth and some of the matriarchs in, in the Old Testament. And like, what do we do with our longing? What do we do with our desire? Is that from God? Where does that point us? So if you missed any of those messages, I wanna encourage you to go back and listen to them. This morning, we're jumping ahead in our story a little bit. Jesus has been born at this point. Mary's given birth to Jesus in Bethlehem. The shepherds have come, the angels have sung. And the scripture that we're reading today, Jesus is about six weeks old. And we're gonna look at the life of a woman. There's about three verses written about her, but I believe that there's stuff that God wants to teach us about how do we wait and believe well from her life. So go ahead and turn to Luke 2 if you have a Bible. It's also going to be up on the screen. We're going to be in Luke 2, starting at verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, that's baby Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the Lord required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel." The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are here by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning. We welcome you. So good to be 
in your presence, with community of believers. God, I just pray that no matter how we came in here today, tired, excited, feeling low and depressed, Lord, anything in between, Jesus, you're here and you want to meet with us. I pray open our hearts to receive from you this morning in Jesus' name, amen. A couple of weeks ago, uh, my kids watched the movie A Christmas Carol. First time they'd ever seen it. You might be familiar with this story by this wonderful man, British author, and uh, Charles Dickens. And he has written this, he wrote this story a long time ago, A Christmas Carol, about this character, Ebenezer Scrooge, who is grumpy and this grisly old man driven by scarcity and greed. And, and he's visited by, by three ghosts in this story. The ghosts of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future. Well, I'm gonna borrow from that story today, if you'll allow me. We're gonna steal those three lenses of past, present, and future as we reflect upon the life of Anna here today. How does our past affect our capacity to wait and believe well? How do we wait in the present? What does that look like? to wait and believe and remain open and receptive to God? And then what does it mean for our future? How do we partner with God in dreaming and pursuing and saying yes to the things that he is doing and is gonna do? So those are the lenses that we're gonna use today to look at the life of Anna. But before we do that, let me just set the scene for you in this story. Mary and Joseph have come to the temple because that's what Jewish law requires. They have brought the child, and they meet this wise, older, elder kind of, kind of guy, Simeon. He's righteous, and he's devout, and he's been waiting on the promise for Israel. He knows there is a Messiah coming, and he's just been waiting. And he has convinced, the Holy Spirit has shown him, he will not die until he witnesses the fulfillment of this promise. So they bring the child, Simeon holds the child, he begins to prophesy over Jesus. He says things like that he's gonna be a light for the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. He just begins to prophesy what's on God's heart over this child, Jesus. And, and Mary and Joseph just marvel, they're amazed. They're like, whoa, how does this guy know all this stuff? And so they're having this moment and then right in that scene, Anna enters. She comes into the story, and there's three verses about Anna, and none of them record anything that she says. I mean, on one hand, we have Simeon here, and he's prophesying, and then he's speaking to Mary, and he's got so many words, and then Anna, but what does she say? I mean, does she hold baby Jesus? Does she prophesy? Says she's a prophet. Like, what happens in this moment? The, the narrative goes quiet. And for some of us, we kind of groan here. It's like, okay, typical. <laughs> here comes the woman, and we've got no, none of her words are recorded. Like, we've got so much from Simeon, but what about Anna? Why does the text go quiet? We kind of groan, and we're like frustrated by that. I get that. I'm a woman. I spent a lot of my ministry career coming alongside other women and amplifying their voices and empowering them. And I'm very sensitive to spaces and conversations where women's voices are silenced. And I find myself approaching this text with that same kind of groan of like, where's Anna's voice? 
Like, is, is Luke trying to diminish her? Is he trying to silence her here? So I get that response. But church, I want to say we have to be careful to not project onto Scripture what may be our own experience or a cultural reality without going in and studying and saying, is that really what Luke is doing here? Like, are we supposed to just kind of sidestep Anna? Is she supposed to be silenced and quiet? I don't think so. Here's why. Number one, Luke doesn't need to mention Anna here, but he does. Doesn't need to mention her. This moment could all be about Simeon and baby Jesus, but he draws our attention to Anna. She's included in the story. Number two, Luke has this habit. If you read through his book of drawing in and centering the stories of the marginalized and of women. If you pick up his book and read through it, you're going to read about the woman that broke that alabaster jar over Jesus' feet. You're going to read about the woman with bleeding that Jesus ran to and healed. You're going to read about the persistent widow. You're going to read about the women that were there at the resurrection. Luke is not in the habit of diminishing and silencing women's voices. In fact, he brings them front and center. So why is the text quiet here? There's a few things I'd like to suggest. Number one, this seems to have been kind of a literary device that Luke and other people writing at that time used. That they actually used silence and quiet in the same way they used words to draw the reader in. See, when the text goes quiet, it doesn't mean it's not important. It means that we need to zero in and sit with it a little longer. There's something else that I think that, that Luke is doing here that I think is fascinating. He's like, he's drawing us in and he wants us to pay attention. What are we paying attention to? There is a gender coupling happening here in this moment. You've got Simeon and you've got Anna. And again, Luke does this again and again through scripture. You've got Zechariah and Elizabeth. You've got Mary and Joseph. You've got the parables of the good shepherd who is male, coupled with the parable of the woman that finds the coin. Like throughout Luke, you see this gender coupling. And it's as if, dare I say it, Luke wants to be loud and clear that the kingdom of God is inclusive of men and women that the kingdom of God is about men and women in partnership, side by side, receiving the grace of God and entering into the ministry and the mission of God. I think he's also drawing our attention to something else here. We don't know a ton about Simeon's life, but we hear a lot of his words. We don't hear any of Anna's words, but we know quite a bit about her life. I wonder if Luke is also drawing our attention to the coupling of the prophetic words and the prophetic lifestyle. That those two things go hand in hand. That those prophetic words, the things that we become aware of that are on God's heart, that we begin to speak out in faith, need to also be married to a prophetic lifestyle, which we're going to unpack a little bit this morning. I think Luke goes kind of quiet here because he wants us to lean into the story of Anna, wants us to pay attention to her. So let's do that this morning and let's apply those Ebenezer Scrooge lenses. Number one, let's talk about Anna's past. What do we know? It says there was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Penuel and of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. 
She lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then she was a widow till she was 84. So she's a daughter of Israel. We know she's the tribe of Asher. She would have known the promises of God about the Messiah. She would have been part of this community that had been waiting and believing for generations. We also know she's a widow. Similar to Naomi that we learned about three weeks ago, she had the experience of being married and then losing her husband after just seven years of marriage. She would have known grief and loss and sorrow. She would have experienced the depths of what it means to have found that person that you would thought you would spend forever with and after just seven years, while you're still a young woman, to have lost her husband. She would have known that kind of loss and grief and pain. And the thing is, you know what? Sometimes when we experience that kind of tragedy, it can cause our hearts to just close off, to become hardened, to resist God. But we don't see that here with Anna's story. In fact, we see a woman that's expectant and ready and in the temple night and day. She has somehow, despite the tragedy and the loss and the pain, kept her heart stuffed before the Lord. Well, you could say, well, you know, she's older now, Ruthie, time heals. Church, time does not heal what we do with time heals. What had she done with her time? We don't know. But we know the kind of woman that she could have become. She could have had, there could have been a wedge between her and God, but there isn't. There's this intimacy. Somehow she had the ability to process what she had been through. A couple of weeks ago, I posted something on my Instagram. I saw a bunch of you all posting it too. There's this graphic that was just going around and I just reposted it. It says this, did it hurt? When you realize 2022 is just 22 days away and you're still processing 2019, which is about to be three years ago. <laughs> now it's less than 22 days. <laughs> but I, I posted this because I read it and I was like, dear God, yes, it did hurt. It hurt when I just read that and I realized that is so true. Like there's some stuff from like 2019 that I didn't quite get to process because 2020 came in like a friggin' bulldozer. And I'm like, whoa, there's just like so much. And wait, now we're almost into 2022 and it's three, what? Why did that resonate with so, so many of us? Why was that just filling up my Instagram feed? Because I think to some degree, all of us realize we just haven't had time to process. We know we need to process, but we just haven't. And it's just like life is moving so quickly and like, whoa, what do we do when we don't have that space and time to process? What do we do when we don't have space and time to process pain? I mean, not just life, not just like happenings and comings and goings and changes, but pain. What happens when we don't process our pain? See, unprocessed pain forces us to push down longing and desire because the heart needs space and time to heal. Unprocessed pain is a habit of hijacking our thinking. We find that we can't stop thinking about that person or that regret or if we've done something different. We lie awake at night and our mind is flooded with thoughts and conversations we wish we'd done differently. You see, unprocessed pain rolls around in our head and in our body. 
Unprocessed pain seems to amplify our anxiety. It tells us the stories of worst-case scenarios, constantly thinking, well, what would I have done better? And how can I like, proof my life so I don't feel that pain again? It amplifies our anxiety, and it robs us of our ability to dream and hope. But there's a certain kind of pain that wreaks havoc on our life that I think many of us have experienced in the last year or two, and that is the pain of heartbreak. In her latest book, Atlas of the Heart, Brene Brown quotes Joe Reynolds, who is a retired Episcopal priest, and he says this, heartbreak is what happens when love is lost. It's not the same as disappointment. It's the loss of love or the perceived loss of love. It's when we give our heart to someone and they don't treat it kindly. It's when we experience intense rejection. It's the death of a loved one. It's when someone changes and you don't, know, don't recognize who they are anymore. It's when someone moves away and we just don't see them anymore. I wonder if you've experienced any heartbreak in 2021. And we rationalize it, don't we? Well, you know, they got a better job offer and good for them. I'm so happy. That totally makes sense. And, oh, they needed more space. You know, they've got kids now. Like, that's awesome that they moved away. Like, we rationalize our pain and our grief, but we don't process it. She goes on to say in her book, in another chapter, she quotes this grief expert called David Kessler, and, and he talks about how everyone's grief looks different, but there is one common denominator for all of us with grief, and that is that our grief needs to be witnessed. Not to be rationalized or reframed or minimized, but he says the need is for someone to be fully present to the magnitude of their loss without trying to point out the silver lining. It's not to rationalize, it's not to reframe it and say, there, there, here's the positives. It's for someone to sit with us in our heartbreak and say, this actually is significant. I want to be with you in this. I want to hear those unmet longings. I want to hear about the goodbyes and the changes. We need someone to witness our grief, to sit with us. And to, for us to just feel like this is significant, this matters. But what happens when we forgot? I mean, what happens when we don't even know how to name what we're grieving? How does someone witness it with us? What about the unspoken things? The things that happened years ago, the things that life's just too busy. We just, so much is going on and we just can't even remember. What are we grieving again? We experience this sense that something is off, especially around Advent, where we're encouraged to sit with those things. But what if you can't even really name it? I mean, who can witness it when you can't name it? I've shared before with you this, the story that I lost my brother when, when I was 18 years old. And when we were kids, we used to go to this kind of park that's near my house. There's like a river next to it, a body of water, and there's ducks that would be all around us. On Sunday evenings, my mom would take us to this park. We would throw bread for the ducks, and then we would run this like obstacle course. And it was, it's like one of my favorite memories with my brother. But it's been 22 years since he passed. And life happens, and life gets busy and full, and I got married, and I had kids, and things just kind of keep moving. 
Well, last year we moved house, and we now live very close to Golden Gate Park, and there's a lake right there. And during virtual church season, on Sunday mornings, I would walk around the lake, and I would just spend time with God. And this one Sunday, I was near the lake, and I sat down, and suddenly I was surrounded by ducks. And I had this flashback to this memory with my brother, and just the joy that we would have together, and and it was fun. And honestly, I'd kind of forgotten it. I hadn't thought about it. It wasn't at the forefront of my mind. I had this flashback, and I felt this grief. I felt this sadness, and then I felt this joy. Because what I realized was, you know, when we were looking for a home to live in, I wasn't looking for a lake, and I wasn't looking for ducks. I was looking for somewhere to park my car, an extra bedroom for my kids. You know, that's what I was looking for. I wasn't looking for a lake. I wasn't looking for ducks. I had forgotten that they even mattered to to me. But do you know who had not forgotten? God had not forgotten. You see, even in that moment, as I felt the waves of grief of like, oh, I missed this, I felt the joy of knowing someone was witnessing my pain. Someone was in it with me, even the stuff I couldn't remember, even the stuff if you'd asked me about it, it, I, I wouldn't have known how to say it, but God had not forgotten. See, this is what it's like, church, to have God sit with us, be with us, to witness the things we struggle with and carry. I think one of the reasons that we don't process our pain is because we think we have to do it alone. I don't want to face that because I don't even know how to communicate that. Who's going to know? God knows. You see, we need this kind of God, the God of Advent that doesn't shy away from the painful memories, that doesn't give us the silver lining, say, you're all good, you're fine, let's move on, that actually enters in and says, I know you don't even remember that this matters, but I remember that it matters. See, that is the God of Advent. And this is the Christmas story. God with us. Church, where do you need God to just come and be with you this morning? Because our ability to wait and believe is significantly impacted by how well we process our pain. How we allow God to come meet us in there. Every every day now when when I walk around that lake, It's like a memorial. I don't feel grief anymore, by the way, when I walk around that lake, when I have that memory. I experience being known. I feel like, God, wow, you remembered. You know. God wants us to experience his presence in that way. What about our present lens? It says in verse 37 that Anna, she never left the temple, but she worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. She planted herself in the temple. She positioned herself in communion with God, intimacy with God, not distant, not rejecting, not on the fringes, but she planted herself in the presence of God. And she's not distracted and she's not half-hearted. She is right there worshiping in his presence. And because she had planted herself In this place of communion with God, she was ready. 
Mary and Joseph come into the temple, having this moment with Simeon, and it says she stepped right into that moment. Church, sometimes we just need to think about positioning ourselves in the presence of God so that we are ready to step into our destiny. She positioned herself intimately in God's presence, worshiping night and day, consumed. It's like Psalm 84 where the psalmist says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. She had become so just caught up and captivated by the presence of God that her focus and her attention were on him. Church, I want to ask you, do you feel ready in your waiting and believing? Do you feel positioned to step into the things that God is doing in your life? Or do you feel distracted? I want to suggest this morning that some of us are out of position. That there's a distance between us and God. You know it, you feel it. I don't even need to unpack that anymore for some of you. You're like, yeah, I'm out of position. I, was, I, knew, I know what it's like to experience God, and I don't feel that right now. I'm out of position. Some of you know that. Some of you are sitting here this morning, you're like, wait, am I in position? Am I out of position? What's the position? How do I know? Like, it's like, give me, just let me check these things off so I know I'm in position. All right, let's talk about being in position. Because I think Anna gives us some insight too. Number one, perspective. She is consumed with God. I mean, her eyes are on him. She is worshiping night and day. Church, I think so often our eyes end up being on the thing that we are waiting for. We are focused on that thing. We are talking about that thing. We're consumed with that thing, and we are not consumed the presence of God. That middle of last year, I had a moment and my husband and I, we were walking through some, some really stressful things, like big decisions, really weighty decisions. And it had been going on for a few months, and we'd been waiting on God on some stuff. And I honestly, my anxiety levels were insane. Extreme stress. One day, everything just kind of hit the fan. And I was just like, God, I don't know if we can trust you. I don't know if you're going to come through, and it's going to affect our family and our kids. And big decisions to make. I don't know what to do. And I was kind of on the verge of a panic attack, and I remember Brian walked into the room, and, and I was telling him a story. I had a narrative. I was, I was fixated on it. It's all I could see, all the obstacles, all the problems, all the what-ifs, all the worst-case scenarios. I was like, babe, I just, I just don't know. I, just, I feel like I'm spiraling. And he said, Ruthie, we, we just need to trust God. And I was so irritated with him. Because there's nothing worse when you're like spiraling into despair and someone comes along to remind you of the goodness of God. It's like, shoot, I don't want to hear that. Like, I'm so, I'm so deep into this thing. I don't even, I mean, and I told him that, right? <laughs> and I was just like, no, 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 I, I just don't see it. I, I just don't know. And I heard these words come out of my mouth. I said, Brian... Won't you just join me in my anxiety? <laughs> Leading my husband into sin. And, <laughs> and he looked me dead in the eye and he said, no, I'm going to trust God. Brian Kim, everyone. Um, <laughs> 
But like, don't we all need someone like that to interrupt our crazy and remind us, no, we are going to trust God because your eyes right now are on the problem. But it's time to lift them up. Time to get some perspective. Church, some of us are out of position because all we can see is the problem. All we can see are the obstacles. And we tell ourselves this story. And we lie awake at night and we tell ourselves this story of all the things that aren't going to work out and why God's not good enough and all the brokenhearted, disappointed history that we were telling ourselves a story. Church, it is time to tell ourselves a different story. I am fully convinced that every single person in this room is called to preach. Called to preach sometimes only to a community of one, yourself. You see, the problem is most of us are incredible preachers. We're preaching the wrong story, right? We're preaching the story of anxiety and this isn't going to work out and I can't see a way forward. Like we're preaching that story. But I believe through worship, we set our eyes on what is true and we say, oh, there's a different story to preach here. There's a different message that I need to declare over my life. And sometimes you tell yourself that story a hundred times an hour, preaching to your soul and just saying, soul, I know it doesn't feel this way, but I was in worship this morning and I remembered this is what's true. So I'm just going to remind you, soul, God is good. God is for me. God has not forgotten me. He's working in my life. I might not see it. I might not feel it. But he is at work. This is how we get into position. We put our eyes on Jesus. See, when we worship church, we put that anxiety in its rightful place beneath the feet of Jesus. See, when we worship we remind principalities that no weapon forged against us gets to prosper. When we worship, all these chains of shame are broken. And remember that it is God's delight to forgive us, to wash us clean, to restore us. When we worship, we tell a story that generations before us have told, that God is bigger, that God is stronger, that God is more powerful, that nothing can defeat him. That's what we do when we worship. This is how we wait well. This is how we stay in position. It also says that, Anna was fasting and praying. We have perspective to keep us in position and we have practices to keep us in position. We enter into this intimacy through worship and we enter into the discipline of prayer and fasting that act like a trellis, that keep us tethered when we don't feel it. We create space for communion with God. That's what prayer and fasting does. It's just a rhythm of creating space creating space to commune with God for him to come and fill and come and, come and, and, and speak to us and work in us. And church, can I let you into a secret? That very often when I pray or fast, I feel nothing. I sometimes, dare I even admit, feel bored. <laughs> but it is the discipline of creating space because every time we pray and we fast and we feel nothing, 
it is, a, it is a declaration of faith that something happened even though I couldn't see it or feel it. And when we practice that enough, it shifts our mindset so that when we're not praying or fasting, when we're just living in life, when we're walking through the city, when we're going to work, our mindset is tuned into, I might not see it, I might not feel it, but God's doing it. You see how that works? With those practices, you practice just five minutes a day of prayer and communion with God. I don't feel it. You walk away from it. You can either tell yourself a story that nothing happened, or you can remind yourself, faith, I live by faith and not by sight. It's the evidence of things unseen. God, you're at work. And you keep doing that, and we are transformed into the kind of people that are like Anna. There can be in a moment where God begins to be at work, where the Messiah shows up in the scene, she's so sensitive to that moment because she has cultivated a prophetic lifestyle. This is a prophetic lifestyle, by the way. Worship and rhythms with God. Sometimes we hear people prophesying and sharing things that are on God's heart, and we're like, oh, is that kind of a magic trick? No, that is what happens when we live a prophetic life. We become sensitive to the things of the Spirit. Church, this is how we wait well. We worship, we pray, we create space for God. Are you out of position Is there any part of your life that is out of position today, church, where you're just like, man, I used to worship, I used to believe that stuff, but this has just been a rough year. I used to pray and fast, and I had some rhythms, and I just kind of, you know, I got a job, and it got busy, and I'm just not sure what happened to that. Where do you need to get back into position so that you can wait and believe well? And what about our future lens? says, coming up to them at that very moment, Anna, she gave thanks to God and she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna had an encounter in this moment. She is able to recognize and discern a move of God. And then she goes from that place and she steps into the fullness of the calling on her life to go tell other people. But church, Just notice here, Jesus hasn't preached a sermon yet. Jesus hasn't raised the dead or healed the sick or cast out any demons. Actually, Jesus hasn't even taken his first step at this point. And yet Anna is so convinced that she is seeing the infancy, literally, of the fulfillment of the promise. She's like, oh, it's here. God's moving Sometimes we're just waiting until this thing becomes a full adult. We're like, God, when all the evidence is there, when I've got my assurances, when I've got the things all lined up, when, I, when you've shown to me this isn't risky, this is really you, when I've got my ducks in a row, then I will partner with you. But I believe this morning, church, that there are some of us here, God is beginning to do something in our life. We're beginning to sense God speak to us. We're hearing things in our community. We're seeing some circumstances shift. And our tendency is that maybe we've got a little too comfortable in our waiting. We're like, oh, well, I'm just going to wait until I see more and more and more. 
Anna could have said, I think this is the Messiah, but let's just wait 30 years and see what happens when he grows up. No, she was so convinced that something was happening. It was in the beginning stages that she partnered with it immediately. What is that thing in your life where you are seeing God do something and you're like, I don't want to quite throw myself at this thing yet because that's vulnerable and risky and scary. But I believe that is just as much part of our waiting and believing as knowing when God is on the move, how do we move with him? How is God on the move in your life? What are the small places that he's touching that you're like, I felt something stirring and I just don't know. Church, this is the time to activate our faith because sometimes we're waiting and believing and you know what? Heaven's waiting on us. Heaven is waiting on us to discern that moment and say, okay, I wanna, I wanna step into this. I wanna, I'm gonna move into this, God, and I'm gonna trust that if this is you, you're gonna open this thing up and you're gonna heal and you're gonna restore and you're gonna do something, and I'm gonna trust if it's not you, you're gonna close this thing down. But sometimes, church, we have to move. How is God at work in your life? So we're going to move into a response time this morning.